As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. This year's Winter Olympics are the first to rely entirely on snow made by machines. Our correspondent meets with a snow consultant, a powder obsessive who's pioneering a simpler and more sustainable way to line the slopes. And in Bollywood, there's a lot of talent that's heard and not seen. The most celebrated so-called playback singer of them all was Lata Mangeshkar. Our obituaries editor reflects on the woman who gave voice to a newly liberated India. First up, though. In Afghanistan this week, the United Nations voiced concern for the safety of a group of women who've opposed the Taliban. Nearly three weeks after their disappearance, there is still no news about the whereabouts and well-being of four women activists and their relatives who were detained or abducted in Kabul in connection with the recent women's rights protests. But the growing threat to women and their rights is far from the only tragedy unfolding. The last American troops left Afghanistan more than six months ago. And as the machinery of government and the economy have ground to a halt under the Taliban, people are starving. A hospital in Kabul is doing what it can to treat children. One man says, my child has been suffering from malnutrition for two months. We have no money. There's something like 22, 23 million people in the country who at the moment don't have enough food, and that equates to more than half the population. Ben Farmer writes about Afghanistan and Pakistan for The Economist. Many of them don't have any income. Many of them don't have any savings. For Afghans, this terrible situation means that they're having to make really awful awful decisions about where the next meal comes from, how they can feed their children. What kind of terrible decisions do you mean? Well, when these people don't have any way of feeding their families, they're really driven to desperation. And there are reports coming out of Afghanistan that people are having to sell children. There are people having to sell organs as well. One doctor in the capital of Kabul said that more than 200 people had come to his hospital to sell their kidneys in the last five years. He added that starvation was forcing many to part with organs simply for a bite of bread. I myself have met dozens of people who sold kidneys uh, in recent years. They'd get just a few thousand dollars and often they're left with very poor health afterwards, but they feel they have no choice. One local resident in the town of Herat told a local camera crew that she had to sell her kidney to help pay for basic living expenses. The woman added that she also had to sell one of her daughters. 
Poor Afghan families have always had the option of selling children, particularly daughters are sold for marriage, if they get into desperate straits. But the situation is so bad at the moment that the numbers who are falling into this terrible dilemma appears to be increasing. And we spoke with you at the very beginning of the American pullout, and there were fears of things getting bad. But how is it that it's got this bad? I think the scale of the collapse is just a sign of how reliant Afghanistan was on foreign aid when the West was backing Ashraf Ghani's government against the Taliban. Something like 75% of the government budget was paid for by foreign donors like America and European nations. When the Taliban took over, that money stopped overnight. With the end of that foreign aid overnight, that's meant that hundreds of thousands of salaries are not being paid for teachers, doctors, nurses, and so on. The civil service has collapsed, huge numbers of people without any money. But also sanctions that have come into effect mean that there is very little trade, uh, the economy is in meltdown, the banking system is paralyzed. Huge numbers of people just don't have any income at all. And what efforts have there been to fill the aid gap that's been left here? The international community is providing hundreds of millions of dollars worth of food and nutrition, but that only goes so far. It doesn't make up for the collapse of the economy. No one can get jobs, no one can have an income, and no one can look after themselves or stand on their own two feet. The difficulty the international community finds itself in is caught between wanting to avoid a collapse in Afghanistan, but not wanting to support the Taliban. Countries like America and European nations do not want aid to prop up that Taliban regime. But if they withhold aid as they are at the moment, that is only leading to unimaginable suffering for millions of Afghans. And we spoke quite a bit about what kind of governance that the country could expect under the Taliban, and there were hopes it would be something a little less hardline than the country's seen before. How has that part played out? The Taliban certainly tried to reassure everybody before they took power that they had changed and they would not return to their restrictions and repression of the 1990s. They've been very disappointing in a lot of ways. It's very difficult to get reliable information out of Afghanistan at the moment. Uh, a lot of people are scared to talk. The Taliban are often unapproachable. But we do hear very worrying reports about repression, uh, whether that is demonstrators going missing, whether that is members of the former regime being the victims of reprisals. It looks like there is still a lot of discrimination against women. The schools are largely closed for the winter at the moment, but until they did close just before Christmas, girls were largely kept away from secondary school. It also looks like large numbers of women have been kept away from the workforce. The other thing that the international community is very worried about is the Taliban's links to al-Qaeda. Again, this is something they said that they would have changed from their previous regime, that the country would not again become a launchpad for attacks. But intelligence assessments have said that the two groups still remain quite close. And that really does alarm a lot of Western intelligence agencies. And there had been quite a lot of people at the time of the U.S. pullout just trying to essentially get out of the country. How has that played out? What effects is this having regionally? In the four decades of turmoil that Afghanistan has gone through, whenever the situation has taken a turn for the worst, large numbers of Afghans have chosen to leave the country. They've left as refugees, they've gone to Iran, they've gone to Pakistan. We are seeing that again at the moment. Now, both those countries, Iran and Pakistan, are reluctant to uh, see millions of people come and strain their own economies. 
So they're trying to keep people out, but large numbers are still crossing the border, thousands every day. Some of them may try and set up uh, new lives there. But in recent decades, there has been a well-worn path into Europe, and that definitely remains the ambition for many young people who are looking for a better life. And you describe a, a situation that just seems set only to get worse. I mean, how do you see this playing out? The Taliban have said when schools reopen after the winter in March that they do intend to have girls back at school. If that's the case, then maybe the international community will see that as a concession which they can work with and start to work on aid again. The Red Cross are starting to pay for hospital salaries, doctors and nurses, and that is making a difference. But fundamentally, there won't be a major change in Afghanistan's situation until economic sanctions are relieved. That seems unlikely to happen with the way the Taliban are running the country. And that means more people will leave and those that remain will be in ever more difficult circumstances. Thanks very much for joining us, Ben. You're welcome. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Alongside the slopes at this year's Winter Olympics are hundreds of snowmaking machines. And good thing, too. There is a critical shortage heading into the Winter Olympics. There's just not a lot of snow. In order to pump out powder, the machines must gulp in water, a scarce resource in that part of China. It cost them $60 million using the amount of water that could fill 400 Olympic-sized pools using those snowmaking machines. For Olympics organizers, it's a headache. For the environmentally conscious, it's unconscionable. And for one man, finding an alternative is an irresistible challenge. I'd never met anyone so enthusiastic about snow until I came across Mikko Martikainen. Do you think you have a mystical relationship with snow? I hope. <laughs> Simon Willis writes for 1843, our sister publication. Mikko grew up in Varkaus, which is a small industrial city in the middle of Finland. And growing up there, learning to ski was a bit like learning to walk. Uh, there was snow on the ground for six months a year. And for most of us, playing outside means playing in the streets. But for Mikko, it meant going to the hill and skiing. And all that practice turned Mikko into a really good skier. And when he was 25, he was tapped to be the coach of the Finnish Alpine ski team. And then he became a snow consultant. A, a snow consultant. What, what does that mean? Well, to move away from being dependent on natural snow, most ski resorts these days use artificial snow made by snow machines. Over half the slopes in the French Alps are supplied by snow machines, and in America nearly all of them are. And every Winter Olympics since Lake Placid in 1980 has also relied on artificial snow. This has created a market for people who can help resorts and big events like the Olympics to guarantee that they've got snow, whatever the weather. People presumably like Mikko. I mean, did you follow him on his snowmaking journey? So Mikko and I went recently to a small ski resort uh, in a town called Rovaniemi, which is uh, bang on the Arctic Circle in Finnish Lapland. We met uh, another Mikko, Mikko Lonstrom, who is the snow manager at the resort. Mikko, a very good name. 
Go Mikko too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. If, you, if you translate it to Mikko, it comes uh, sound, uh And we went there because he wanted to show me the impact that shorter winters are having on the snow industry. How much snow have you had here? Uh, approximately 100,000 100,000 cubic meters. Cubic meters. Cubic meters. And natural snow this season so far? Well, we have been made three days snow in this, this year. So maybe 10,000 right. cubic. Right. Not enough. Not, not enough. <laughs> not even Because the weather's been too warm. Too, too warm, yeah. yeah. But according to Mikko, using the snow machine is not a guarantee of snow. He recounts a situation at Winter Olympic Games in 2010 where the snow machines fell short. We made only one mistake in one, and it was they didn't make a plan B for the warmer spot of the Games. Yeah. And the winter was so warm at some of the venues in Vancouver that it was impossible to make snow. And as the snow conditions worsened everywhere in the world, Miko spotted an opportunity and he set about trying to figure out how to guarantee snow even when it's warm or dry. Around the year 2000, he began talking to physicists and geographers and hydrologists and meteorologists so that he could learn about how snow forms and how weather affects its quality and how it morphs and melts and then how best to protect it. And in the course of all those discussions, what did he find? Well, the most important thing for Miko was to find an ecological and economical way uh, to ensure snow throughout the year. The main lines before starting to uh, have a vision plan, you need to de- uh, make a decision. Do you want to have ecological skills or unecological? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it's a decision who will give you the road. Snow machines are really expensive and they require a lot of water. There's one ski resort company in Sweden called Ski Star, which runs five ski areas in the country. And they used about 5 billion litres of water to make snow in the 2019-2020 ski season. And that's enough to fill 27 million bathtubs. And having looked at all the ways you might make snow when the weather's not been cooperative, Miko decided that the best way was just to recycle old snow. How, how do you recycle old snow? Well... Simply put, if we can't make fresh snow with snow machines, Miko just tries to stop all the old snow from melting. And that means wrapping it up in giant piles in various forms of insulation, essentially. And it doesn't melt over the summer. According to Miko, this isn't a new phenomenon. Storing ice, it's Asian innovation. Babylonia, in Korea, in China, all the cold areas. In Scandinavia, they used to store it over the summer under a thick layer of sawdust. The difference is they were doing it to keep food cold, and Miko's doing it for winter sports. So how is Miko going about putting this snow recycling into practice? Well, when he first started experimenting with recycling snow, he used the old-fashioned Scandinavian method, which was to pile loads of sawdust on top of the snow. But that had a couple of problems. It tended to stain the snow, so, so when you unwrapped it come the winter... It had a kind of weird brown tinge, which isn't very attractive. Um, so after that, he tried various other things. He's tried uh, insulating felt, and which is kind of like carpet. And now he uses kind of extruded polystyrene, which is the same thing you might find in the walls of houses. And at the ski resort we visited in Rovaniemi, it hadn't been cold enough to make any snow. And so all of the snow that was on the slopes had been recycled. These snow guns, what you have, can make the snow. It will melt 
fall away in spring. We don't let it melt. We collect it in a huge pile, insulate it. After that, you don't need any electricity, no power. And in autumn, you know the opening day, take the insulation away, right? And you can open the slope, 100% current, whatever the weather will be. And in our but it's not that easy to do. Nico's still working at it. But even as he's working on it, perfecting it, has he been asked to sort of put it to the, the professional test? He stockpiled a lot of snow for the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi, which was the first games he worked on. A million cubic meters of snow, which is about enough to fill 41 Carnegie Halls. And it wasn't always of great quality. There was one test event for the games where the snow turned out to be a kind of odd brown color, which he calls Coca-Cola snow. But he'd done what he needed to do in Sochi, which was the warmest Olympics on record. In fact, at one venue, the average temperature during the Games was 10 degrees centigrade, which isn't exactly snow-friendly. Because he'd managed to stockpile so much snow for the Games, there was snow even at the seaside. And then after the Games, in 2017, he got a call from Beijing. That is to say, he is the snow consultant for, for the Winter Olympics going on now. Well, at first, the Olympic Committee in Beijing were really enthusiastic. But then, for some reason, they decided to rely entirely on fresh artificial snow, just like all the ski resorts do around the world. And so, given that he was ultimately turned down by Beijing for, for his technology, where, where does Miko see all of this going now? Well, he remains very optimistic. He is optimistic not only about snow recycling at the Games in the future, but also about snow recycling at ski resorts in general. I hope they will make a change now mm-hmm. they can turn it more ecological when recycling the water mm-hmm. and helping the snowmaking system work more efficient. Simon, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. The profession of a playback singer isn't a concept we have much in Western cinema. But in Indian cinema, Bollywood, it's all important. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. The role of the playback singer can probably best be seen in Mahal, the palace. And there's a very moody scene in it where a businessman who's come into the ownership of a palace walks through the rooms and hears a mysterious song going on. It seems to be coming from the garden, so he walks towards the garden and then dimly sees a woman singing on a swing, and then she disappears. The woman on the swing was the great actress Marubala, but the woman who was singing was Lata Mangeshka. And the song, Aega Newala, which means he is to come who is to come, was so haunting and so beautiful that it became a monster hit. And people began to wonder who was singing the song for the actress. Her childhood had been quite haphazard. She was born in Indore. She then travelled around the country because her father was a theatrical producer in a small company. Lata never went to school. And then when she was 13, she had to take on the role of chief breadwinner because her father had died. So she took up acting and found she really did not get on with it. The camera didn't love her. Her eyebrows were too broad. Her gestures were too clumsy. 
So she wanted to do something else and realized that the ideal role for her was as a playback singer. She would be unseen. She could sing freely and beautifully as her father had taught her how to do. She recorded, in the end, more than 5,000 songs. She was the playback singer for more than a 1,000 movies. And it was extremely interesting that her career coincided almost exactly with the growth of newly independent India after partition in 1947. Bombay sees a postscript to the Independence Day celebrations as Lord Mountbatten bids farewell to the first British troops to leave India since the transfer of power. So she was the voice you heard from radios and megaphones all over the country for decades. Wherever you went, her voice was there singing of love and pain. Her most famous song, perhaps, the one that you heard all over India, was one called Pia Kya Todana Kya, which means Why Fear to Be in Love. Her life as a playback singer was not entirely easy. Her voice was thought to be rather high and thin when she first appeared on the scene because the vogue then was for rather gutsier voices than heroines. She also became a campaigner for the rights of playback singers because they were treated rather badly. And she argued forcibly both for higher fees for herself and for playback singers to get a share of the royalties that were paid to composers. In her long career, she did not always stay behind the scenes. She also took Bollywood music to the West. Your Excellencies, my Lords, And among other places, she appeared at London's Royal Albert Hall in 1974, the first Indian singer to perform there. One of the songs she sang was Uthaya Yahunke Sitam, which came from a rather dramatic film and means go on bearing his atrocious attitude and a woman bewailing the bad behaviour of her lover. She was always a great patriot for India, but her very patriotism made people think that she probably belonged in politics. And in 1999, she was appointed to the Upper House in India's Parliament, the Raya Sabha. And when she died, it was like a loss in the family to most of India. People were weeping in the streets. The schools were closed. The flag flew at half-mast, two days of national mourning. And Narendra Modi himself, the Prime Minister, laid flowers on her coffin. He had always been a great fan of hers because she was an enormous fan of his. In some ways, music was her husband. She never married and devoted herself to her craft. All that was left behind, rather as in Mahal, the film that had first made her, was an empty swing, but also the songs. All the songs she had made of the pain and the joy of her life. Anne Rowe on Lata Mangeshkar, who's died aged 92.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors this week are Marguerite Howell, Kim Gittleson, and Chris Impey. Our senior producers are Stevie Hertz, Sam Westron, Jack Gill, and John Joe Devlin. Our producers are William Warren, Rory Galloway, and Alizé Jean-Baptiste. Our assistant producer is Abisoye Oshindairo, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. We'll all see you back here on Monday. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.